Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The story will sound familiar, a incredibly well-liked, well-respected, powerful, well-connected Canadian faces many credible allegations of physical abuse, assault, and sexual abuse. But that's where the similarities end. Laura Robinson wrote for the Georgia Strait about John Furlong. If you're like me and don't know anything about sports, you may not know that John Furlong was the head of the Vancouver Winter Olympics. He has been named to the Order of Canada. He is the recipient of many honorary degrees. He sits on uh, the boards of corporations like Canadian Tire and Whistler Blackcomb. But long before all of that, according to Laura Robinson's reporting, he was an educator at a residential school. Former students at this school now allege that John Furlong subjected them to very serious physical and racial abuse. Shortly after I became aware of Laura Robinson's case, uh, the story was brought up in a conversation with Denise Balkasun on Canada Land Shortcuts. And having just learned that she was being sued and not the Georgia Strait, the newspaper that published her, and that she was footing her own legal bills, I said some things about the Georgia Strait that later I received emails telling me that these things were not true. So I wanted to get to the bottom of that and issue any correction or apology if necessary. And as it happened, I was able to get Laura Robinson in the studio for an interview, not only to help me with that, but to tell her incredible story. And she will do so in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Matthew Ferguson, Matthew Fraser, Ryan Brownwell, Mike Morganton, Martin Roebuck, Jessica Walker, Kelly, Jonathan De Silva, Grantley Franklin, Rob Vanderkam, and Carolyn Anger. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, 
along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. I was out uh, in Vancouver. I was speaking at UBC, and I went down to Robson Square because there was um, a First Nations cultural event going on that I, I wanted to be at. But as you know, you don't go anywhere without your notepad. So I went down and I started talking to the cultural performers and I said, well, you're going to be in the Olympics. And no one was going to be in the Olympics. And they said, no way are we going to be at these Olympics. We've, we've scheduled our own gigs. And I said, well, why not? And they said, well, if you look at the contract we would have to sign, we had to give our intellectual property rights to Vanock and the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, mm-hmm. and forget it. We're not going to do that. You know, they're our intellectual property rights, not theirs. We hear a lot about this, the Olympics being just sort of predatory when it comes to their copyright and their it's a very, It is very strict. Mm-hmm. It's a very strict contract. They said it's not worth it. Yeah. Right? And so I was getting all these interviews, and they were virtually all saying the same thing, whether they were drummers or dancers or, or, or um, visual artists. And then one guy said to me, and I don't know who it was because I, I, he wouldn't give me his name. Right. Uh, he said, you know, you want a real story. John Furlong came from Ireland and taught at a residential school. And I said, I don't believe you. And he said, I'm telling you, it's true. And I said, where? And he said, Northern BC. Well, I mean, Northern BC to me from Ontario, I didn't, I, I, I was there when I was five. Uh, so I, I Googled, nothing came up. What and, was the official story of Furlong's beginning? Well, it was interesting. It was hard to find the official story, uh-huh. actually. Nothing was coming up that had anything to do at all with residential school. And frankly, I couldn't believe that they would hire someone who had taught at a residential school because they were also working with the four host First Nations. And so I didn't think that the kind of contractual arrangements that were with the four host First Nations were going to go very well if those people knew that they were working with someone who was a residential school teacher. You know, given the the history, sure. Uh, so anyway, nothing came up, and I dropped that story completely. And I covered the Olympics. I've covered every Summer Olympics since Atlanta in '96. Uh, this was my first Winter Olympics to cover, and uh, almost forgot about it. And then Mr. Furlong's book came out called Patriot Hearts, and I was reviewing it for Anishinaabek News, which is a First Nations newspaper I've worked for for many years in Northern Ontario. And there there were just things that didn't sit, um, uh, for instance, uh, he said that um, that he was recruited, he lived in Dublin, he was recruited to be the athletic director of a northern BC high school. This is 1974. Well, I was in high school in 1974. And first of all, we didn't have athletic directors in Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, we had gym teachers and we had department heads. And that, and I knew that our gym teachers didn't. You didn't have to go to Europe or Ireland or the UK to find them. You know, our gym teacher could come from down the street. The idea of recruiting some foreign talent for a job like that didn't ring true. Yeah. But and the main thing was uh, also that to he said he was well. If it's an athletic director, that would be like a department head. Well, I knew to be a department head in, in a Canadian high school, you had an honors degree, so that's four years, and then you went to teachers' college and five years, or maybe you did those two together. It was a minimum of four years, and then you taught for ten or fifteen years, and then you could be considered for a department head. And he was only twenty three. 
Right. When he came, and he had a wife and two kids, and he had coached the women's basketball team in Ireland, and he had played on the Irish basketball team, and he played GAA football for Dublin, and he had played international handball. And I couldn't imagine how you could possibly do all that stuff and only be 23 and be a department head. And he didn't name the school. Mm-hmm. But that was easy to find because there was only one Catholic high school in – he did say it was Prince George. So – and it was uh, Prince George College and then up came Bishop O'Grady and Bishop O'Grady was quite the businessman, I must say, found lots on him. And then up came the Frontier Apostle Missionaries because Bishop O'Grady started this you know, Catholic Peace Corps as he called it. Uh-huh. And he staffed his schools 100 percent with missionaries. Uh-huh. Unpaid, you know, 25 bucks a month kind of thing, uh, room and board. And uh, that set me off on, on uh, a search because up came the Frontier Apostle Facebook site for the alumni. Like he had shut down the um, missionary by ni- the mission by 92, but the Frontier Apostle still kept in touch and had reunions. And so the right. Facebook site was up and someone had put on hundreds of pictures from the yearbooks, including coach John A. Furlong. Uh-huh. And there he was, you know, with the basketball team, the volleyball team, the cross-country running, track and field. That was, it was him. So, so then I asked his uh, publisher, Douglas and McIntyre, I said, was it Prince George College that Mr. Furlong taught at? And did he come as a frontier apostle missionary? And no answer, no answer. You know, I keep asking. And eventually, yes, it was Prince George College. And then Mr. Furlong has nothing more to say to you. I tried to ask him in person when I was out west uh, at a luncheon that he was speaking at, and and he he screamed at me and walked away. So then that, for a journalist, of course, that's a slight red flag. Lots of red flags here. Lots of red flags. What did he scream at you? Uh, He he yelled, stop it, stop it, and walked away. Mm -hmm. So I did a story for Play the Game in Denmark. Play the Game is this great organization that's all about transparency, anti-corruption, pro-democracy, freedom of expression, and sport. So I did a story called Sins of Omission, and and I interviewed the high school basketball players. I could see their names in in the yearbook pictures, and they said he was a good coach. They won a lot of games, but then they said, we realized later that he just used us to move up the food chain. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was soon out of Prince George left his wife and kids there and moved down to Nanaimo to be the Parks and Rec director there and then moved from there to the Arbutus Club, which is a health club in Vancouver, and went and managed the health club and then moved on to be the COO of the bid committee for the Olympics and then the CEO of uh, of the Olympic organizing committee. Um, there were no allegations of abuse at that time at all. That story was on the net for a year that he came to Canada as a as a missionary. It's not really an expose. It's just it's just a different story than the one he'd been telling. I exactly. Guess. Yeah. Yeah. He he had never talked about being a missionary, and in fact, he kind of skips a lot. Uh, when I look back at you know, there's a lot of YouTube's of him, and uh, that story's out there for a year, and then. In comes an email from another First Nations person saying to me, I got so sick of the accolades for Furlong, I, I Googled his name plus residential school, and your story came up. Uh-huh. Well, you only talk to the high school basketball players. You need to talk to those people in Burns Lake. And Prince George and Burns Lake are a few hundred kilometers apart, and Burns Lake is a much more isolated place. 
um, because he taught at the elementary school there. And then he gave me two examples that included violence. Uh-huh. And that set me on a search. You know, I called up to the Burns Lake Band office, and uh, within a minute and a half, someone had emailed me and said, I had Mr. Furlong, so did my siblings. What are you writing about? Um, and I contacted the Indian Residential School Survivor Society. Those people put me on to a whole bunch of people. Like They have a northern BC office. They have quite a few offices in northern BC. So, you know, from Ontario, I was able to do a number of telephone interviews. One of the examples that this original person who emailed me gave me, that person was not going to... She told me what happened, but she said, I've worked so many years to in counseling to get rid of these memories. Yeah. I can't not going to be part of this story and I protect and I completely yeah. uh, I respected that. You know, I've done so many years of research on sexual abuse in hockey when when and in the military. So when someone tells you I, I can't do this publicly, you respect that. Yeah. And I didn't need her story by then. I had a huge amount of people in Burns Lake, and I was—I had booked my flight to Burns Lake by then. And were uh, you operating completely independently? Were you were you working for any publication at this point? No, I wasn't working for any publication, and I knew that this kind of a story—you know—John uh, Furlong kind of walked on water out there in Vancouver. Uh, the Globe and you know uh, a, a lot of newspapers were official Olympic sponsors, media sponsors. Mm-hmm. Like for me. You either are a news media or you're a sponsor, but you're not both. And and the TV station, same thing, right? CTV had the broadcast rights, obviously, for those Olympics. Yeah, so a brand like the Olympics, it's just sort of like it, everybody's involved in some way. Everybody's involved. Yeah. And, and so I didn't even pitch it to any of those uh, newspapers yeah. because, uh, you know, they had – they had basically, as far as I could see, just kind of reproduced uh, a lot of press releases without doing due diligence. Yeah. And so I was doing due diligence. Had you done much investigative work at this point? Oh, yeah. Tons. I mean, I, my, my book on hockey, Crossing the Line, Violence and Sexual Assault in Canada's National Sport, came out in 98. I spent six years in hockey arenas across Canada researching this phenomena of the rape culture in junior hockey. You know, I talked to... I've got all kinds of hockey players and and girls who yeah. ended up at parties and 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 retired hockey players who are finally telling their stories about what really happened to them. And just to contextualize you, I mean, you're an interesting person for people to wrap their heads around as somebody who I think is it fair to call you an, uh, an independent journalist who sort of spent your career, the part of your career that was in, in journalism, not in sport, investigating sports and 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 the, and the the problems with sports and and problems with gender and abuse in sports for books, for various publications, but operating more or less independently. Is that a fair characterization? Well, you know, I came from sport, right? I mean, I knew in grade eight uh, that I was going to be a bike racer. Yeah. You know, I knew when I got on my bike, uh, when I got on a real 10-speed and threw my leg over that saddle, that I had found what I was supposed to do for the rest of my life, which was ride a bike. And, you know, I raced at, at the international level, but I could see, you know, I, I could see huge problems in cycling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see that there were a huge amount of young women um, who were being compromised by their coach, yeah. by, their, by their sponsor. And at first I thought I was in the wrong sport. But in 1993, I worked with the Fifth Estate and we did a, a documentary 
on coaches and the sexual abuse of female athletes. And we attended the 1993 Canada Summer Games, and I would just go up to groups of girls and ask, you know, have you ever had a coach who crossed the line? And there wasn't a single group of girls. It didn't matter what sport I went to, who didn't a look across their face. And they either said, well, not me, but my sister, my best friend. And we had, for that documentary, we could have done a series. Yeah. Yeah. We had so many female athletes who had been sexually abused by male coaches. So... um, that and and I was the first journalist in Canada to write about that. I wrote about it in the Globe, gosh, fall of ninety two or ninety three, and they they called that story uh, sexual abuse, sports dirty little secret. Uh huh. Uh-huh. So I I I came from sport. Uh, like I continue to totally rearrange my life so I can ride a bike or ski. Like those are the most important things to yeah. me, but it's I'm not naive. I know that when you have young people who have invested emotionally into something that is their passion, then they are very vulnerable young people because they will do almost anything to continue in that passion. Yeah, and and unfortunately, there's a certain percentage of people who prey upon young vulnerable people. It doesn't matter if it's. Um, a choir or a, a church or a scout uh, uh, pack or or a sports team. Yeah. There's going to – they're vulnerable children. There's that disparity of power and then there's that uh, absolutely consuming hunger to, to do this and be this, and, this. And, and to perform and to do what's being asked of you. It's, it's so – Ripe for abuse. It's so ripe, yeah. And that person is the gatekeeper. Yeah. Uh, so, so you know, I found that in hockey, you know, the, the whole Sheldon Kennedy story and, and Swift Current Broncos. And, you know, I knew about Theo, Theo Fleury years before his book came out. But I didn't say anything because you have to wait until that person's ready. And most people are never ready. Most people never tell us what really yeah. happened to them. All right. Well, that's a, a bit of a digression that'll give people yeah. an idea yeah. of who you are. Um, but let's get back to Furlong. And, and to summarize, you know, uh, I mean, investigations take a long time and you, and you, you accumulate new bits and, and new, new testimonials. What ultimately were the allegations against Furlong that you were able to report? Well, I, I got up to the Burns Lake Band office. There were 36 people waiting for me. And, and this is the, the notice went out like in a day and a, there was a day and a half. And most half of them, though, were there to hold the hands of the people who had something to tell me. So we went into a private. I went one person with if they needed someone with them, they were with them. And I took those stories. They signed them. They dated them. They initialed every page. I, I went right back down to Vancouver. I went right to Charlie Smith, the editor in chief at the Georgia Strait. And Charlie said, Laura, it's John Furlong. I need affidavits. Yeah. So I just went right back up to Burns Lake, and those people were very happy to give me affidavits. Uh-huh. We were lucky that there was a lawyer in Burns Lake, a very a good person. And um, and so they were going on the record with their names. Oh, absolutely on the record with their names. Huh. Yeah. Was there any question of, if, if, if had you only been able to get anonymous sources, was the story a non-starter? Oh, it would have been a non-starter. There's no way you could ever write about uh, someone like John Furlong with anonymous uh, names. No, I wouldn't have done it. Uh-huh. And and I, even with four people, I wouldn't have done it. Uh, but I probably had, by the time that story ran, I had probably 20 people. 20 people on the record. On the record. Claiming eight, white. Yeah, eight affidavits. And then all, all the other ones were um, 
signed statements who they said, if you want to me to do an affidavit, I'll do an affidavit, right? Uh, uh, but the Georgia Street was fine with eight affidavits plus the rest on the record uh, dated statements. Um, Such a soft science of like, well, where are you, okay, well, that's, where's the standard? Is it three? Is it six? Is it eight? And, you know, like. Well, you know, I mean. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> the, the lawyer in Burns Lake, Warren Chapman, said, you know, these people have arrived early, Laura, to sign these things. So what know? were they saying? What were they, they were saying? saying they were talking about physical and racial and psychological abuse. Uh-huh. Very serious. I mean, this is an elementary school. These are people who are between the ages of six and 16 because, you know, in those days they would be failed in kindergarten. I mean, some people were some people were failed in kindergarten three and four times yeah. in a row. Uh, and you have to understand that the Catholic Church got for every First Nations kid they got money from the federal government. Uh-huh. So the longer they could keep them, the more money they got. Yeah. That's why you could find a 16-year-old in grade 7. It uh-huh. wasn't because they were stupid. Uh-huh. They were alleging very serious physical abuse, actually, and racial taunting, like, you know, you're, you're a bunch of stupid Indians, you're good for nothing, dirty, you know, that, that kind of stuff. A lot of people would say, I'll thump ya, you know, that he would say, I'll thump ya, I'll thump ya. And, and then one person, Beverly Abraham, alleged sexual abuse. And, and I, I sat there with her in the restaurant, uh, doesn't touch alcohol at all. You know, she's on a healing journey. She fell apart talking to me about the physical uh, and sexual and psychological abuse. I, it was in her affidavit. It was in my original draft. Uh, the Georgia Strait went with the Torstar decision of 2009 in terms of what we were going to put in the story and what we weren't going to put in. Talking about Grant versus Torstar? Yes. So we didn't put in the sexual abuse because we only had one allegation of it. So I think we erred very conservatively in the way we did this story, and yeah. I'm glad we did. I'm not that. I mean, I believe everything Beverly Abraham yeah. put in her affidavit. More people came forward about sexual abuse after that, not just the two others who um, – sued him for child sexual abuse, but other people who chose not to sue him also gave me statements. So um, it's not that I didn't believe her. Right. And speaking of the Toronto Star, they were originally going to publish this story as well. They were going to originally publish it. And then I I was covering the London Olympics, and but I went to London via Ireland because I, I knew that I would find more information in Ireland. So I, I did. You're uh, flying around. Who's paying for this? Well, first of all, I went out west on points. There, you know, I mean, and uh, you know, as you're not going to be able to pitch this kind of story unless you have a huge amount of evidence already. So you just have to do the groundwork and say, you know, this is an investment in. It's an investment in your career, but you know what? It's really an investment in truth and justice. If, if you want to look at and that's how I looked at it. Yeah. And I've covered First Nations issues for 24 years. McLean said that you are as much an activist as a reporter. Is that accurate? I think it depends on how you um, define activist. Uh, I am a coach uh, in a First Nations community. I started the, the mountain bike club and the cross-country ski club there. I love skiing and cycling with uh, my friends at Chippewa Nawash First Nation. I've seen an entire generation of kids go through, and now I'm coaching, I'm skiing with their little ones. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's massively wonderful to do, to be in the woods with kids who get into skiing. If that's what you call an activist, then I'm an activist. I don't think that that's what they're talking about. I, 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 I mean, it's a, it's a funny charge, and it does have a bit of a whiff of, like, is that a compliment or an accusation that a journalist shouldn't have 
things that they're trying to accomplish or political opinions or – I mean at the very least, just by virtue of being a journalist, you, you, I guess you're actively trying to uh, – Find the truth. Find the truth. You're, trying, you're actively find a, trying to find the truth. And one of the very first stories I did on First Nations athletes was for Canadian Living. And I did it with a man named Basil Johnson. He's an elder from Chippewa of Nawash. He was an ethnologist here at the ROM and is a, uh, has written many books and is a fluent Ojibwe speaker. And he said to me, the uh, Ojibwe understanding of truth is as much as I know from the place I now stand. He told me that in 1990. And I've tried to use that yeah. as my guide. As much as I know from the place I now stand. So how hard have I tried to find as much as I can know? And I stand here now, but I'm going to stand somewhere else later. And how much am I going to know right. then? So the truth changes as you learn more. The uh, the negative side of that charge that you're uh, an activist as, as much as a reporter is is that you're some sort of uh, ideologue crusading and you don't care whose reputation gets killed in the way that this is more about your, your pet issues uh, or some larger statement you're trying to make than it is about the truth. you care to speak to well, that? I, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I've always stood up for truth and justice and equality. Yeah. Uh, always. And I think my work definitely shows that. My work is, uh, you know, like I said, I've written six books. They're all with good publishers, McClellan and Stewart, HarperCollins, Thompson Educational uh, Press. Um, they're used in soci sports sociology classes all over the world. Uh, now I feel bad for even asking you. It's such a bizarre thing to have to defend. I mean, you know, it's in the work or it isn't, I suppose. So. Okay. The Toronto Star. Why, why did the Toronto Star not You're going to have to ask the Toronto Star exactly why they killed the story. Who made that decision? That was made above Colin McKenzie. He, he's, he was the national uh, news editor at the time. Colin felt terrible about it. He's no longer there. And uh, that's definitely an important issue for me. Had, had lawsuits been threatened when they made that oh, decision? I, the lawsuit was threatened uh, way back in March or April 2012. What happened is I, of course, had to get John Furlong's side of this story. Sure. I had these two original allegations from a First Nations person from northern BC. I sent them to his publisher because he'd never given me his email. And I said, you know, very unfortunately, this has come to my email and I need for Mr. Furlong to comment. And probably 48 hours later, a, le a lawyer a yeah. letter from his lawyer came and said, you know, one word. We, he doesn't know what you're talking about. This was 40 years ago. And don't forget, one libelous word, you're sued. And you're, right. So there was the threat. Yeah. So and I sent all of those letters to the star. They knew. They knew. Right. So we can't ascribe anything to their motives, but we can d describe a series of events. L yeah. Uh, lawsuits were threatened. The star was going to publish. They didn't publish. They didn't publish. Okay. The Georgia Strait did. Yeah. What happened next? Well, all hell broke loose. <laughs> it really broke loose. And, you know, they, they purposely held back. They didn't put anything about it on the front cover. I mean, normally that would be a cover story. Mm -hmm. No, it's inside. You know, they, uh, they really were very careful not to sensationalize this. Yeah. And uh, they published late, too. They, they didn't want it, you know, to you – know, they, they did all they could to make this a normal way that um, – we're not going to sensationalize this story, but uh, I guess they published around 10 o'clock Pacific time, and by 101, my time, the phone is ringing. Yeah. Yeah. And it continued, too. And uh, I guess, you know, Mr. Furlong uh, held a press conference that afternoon. He said incredibly libelous stuff about me. 
Um, and um, what did he say? Well, he he said that I was, um, you know, that they had sort of uh, thought they were rid of me after the Olympics. You know, we 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 had to endure this. I'm paraphrasing, and we had to endure this journalist. Uh, during the Olympics, but we thought we were rid of her once the games were over, but obviously not. And, you know, she uh, she has this uh, vendetta mm-hmm. agenda. And um, and then, then he, so he talked about me, and then he started the next sentence with and, and it wasn't a new paragraph, like when he gave out the statements. I was approached about this before the Olympics, and I was told for a certain amount of money, this story could go away. And the, it definitely looked as if I had been the person who had approached him, approached him before the Olympics, as if I was extorting him. I mean, it was unbelievable when I read that. Do you think that was his intention? Well, I can't imagine that when you're, you have, you, you have uh, uh, these ideas in the same paragraph, and then you start, he's talking about me, and the next sentence is, starts with an and. right. Yeah, that we're right. not talking about the same thing. So it seems right? like he was inferring that not only were you on some vendetta against him, like you're a pest, you're on mm-hmm. a vendetta, but there's also the I'd suggestion. I set the thing up to extort him before the Olympics. Extortion, like, blackmail, yeah. that sort yeah, of. Yeah, two years, okay. two years, three years, you know, practically before I even knew of the story. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then came the lawsuit? Uh, yeah, what happened is, um, of course, the story breaks and way more people come forward yeah. about him. Yeah. Including um, an ex common law wife, including a lot of non-native people who witnessed stuff. And meanwhile, I'm back up in northern BC interviewing people. Way more people up there are are nodding to me and saying, I need to tell you something about Mr. Furlong. And, and then what I saw up in northern BC was this terrible trauma in people, right? Because here they were little children when these things, these allegations occurred. They used to run away from the school. He wasn't the only alleged abuser. Mm -hmm. And the police would bring them back. And then they would be punished for lying. Yeah. So 40 years later, they get the courage to tell their stories again. And instead of feeling believed, I mean, they know I believe them in the Georgia Strait. And I think the majority of people in Canada know that that it's really hard to come forward about child abuse. Um, you spend your life trying to get over it. You or, spend your life trying to get over it. Yeah. And, and that you don't want to make enemies of powerful people. So they get the courage to say it. And Christy Clark, the premier of BC, gets on television that night and says, oh, Mr. Furlong's a good friend of mine, you know. And then, um, yeah. and, and then on the podium, which we all support with our tax money, says, uh, you know, Mr. Furlong's a man of great integrity, of, of ethics. Uh, we support him 100% in these difficult days. Uh-huh. So what I did after I saw the trauma up north and saw how difficult it was for, for people not to be believed again, yeah, I talked to some experts who deal with trauma, childhood trauma that revisits an adult. Suicide's more likely. Uh, violence is more likely. There's all kinds of things that trigger very difficult things in their lives. So I wanted to do a story about the re-traumatization of the students. So I, I, I wrote to Own the Podium, and I said, how did you decide that Mr. Furlong's a man of great integrity and ethics? Did you go to Burns Lake? Did you call the people in Burns Lake and interview them yeah. and get their side of the story? I mean, why would Own the Podium just use what I've written, they, you know, if they're going to make a decision, they need to ask the people who, who I reported on. They're not interested in talking to me, right? Yeah, right. Uh, so I, I, I sent that email, and then um, his common law wife alleged very serious violence, and so did 
the girls from Hostel Number Two. Like he was in Burns Lake. He got married to a woman named Margaret Cook, who became Margaret Furlong. They became resident. They moved to Prince George, and they were um, the resident supervisors of Hostel Number Two. She was, and the young the women who were girls in Hostel Number Two started to talk to me about about very serious domestic violence. And so I, I, again, wanted... It was getting towards December 6th, and I wanted to do a story on the, these allegations, and so I asked on the podium to forward these questions to him, and then the lawsuit came within two days. Now, when you sue somebody for libel, you have to be very specific about what they said that was libelous. Mm-hmm. So what did he... Uh, and this is an ongoing lawsuit? It is ongoing, but he hasn't moved it forward. It's over two years old, uh-huh. and, and he hasn't moved it so forward. So what, what does he claim was the libelous statement? Well, he actually said not only the whole story in the Georgia Street, but my two emails. He sued me to those two queries that I sent to own the podium. Yeah. He sued me for those, too. This is an interesting thing that, that I experienced, too, at least in a threat. It's not simply the journalism that gets published, but the idea of do, practicing the journalism, asking questions yeah. that you, you, you are committing some crime of libel or slander in asking questions. In asking questions. And, and people, I think all journalists, all human beings who use email and anything on the net need to know that any words you put on an email or an internet are potentially actionable. Yeah. And, and I knew that. I mean, I asked the questions as, as concisely and as compassionately as I could. I, I, you know, I said to Own the Podium, you know, I, I trust you understand the serious nature of this. And you're asking questions, not making assertions, I imagine. Exactly. Right? Uh, yeah. Originally, you were sued, as was the Georgia Strait. And that is typically how it goes when there's a libel claim against uh, a journalist is that the, the publication or broadcaster is sued as well, but the suit against the Georgia Strait was dropped. Yeah, it was in- interesting how he dropped that. They, of course, are covered with a, a liability insurance. But it also came at the time uh, he received a letter from the RCMP. They were investigating the uh, sexual abuse allegation made by Bev Abraham. And he received a letter saying that that he said exonerated. They said that there weren't that they couldn't find enough evidence, and it was historical. It's very difficult, of course, to to show evidence in historical sexual abuse. Uh, but and so they said we don't have enough evidence, of course, uh, to go. We're not recommending that these chart that two crown that that charges be laid. And he used that letter to say, well, now I don't. I'm I'm going to withdraw the suit against the straight and, you know, uh, accelerate my case against Ms. Robinson. But in fact, I didn't put anything about sexual abuse in the article in the first place. Everyone else did, by the way. That night, the the night that my article came out, the CBC did a big documentary on the national news yeah. and did include sexual abuse. And everyone ran up to Burns Lake, everyone else, CTV, Global, you know, every single print media. They all ran, including the star, with sexual abuse allegations. In fact, I was the only journalist who didn't run with sex abuse So once you cracked this open with the Georgia Strait, the Star was okay with publishing it then? Yeah. yeah. And so that was his cover for dropping it against the Strait. Why do you think he only came after you and not after the CBC, not after the Toronto Star, not after the Georgia Strait? Well, I, I'm not going to comment on that. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I'm a, a, I'm a lone freelancer, and I, you know, I've, I'm doing fundraisers constantly to, to raise enough money to defend responsible right. journalism and, and truth-telling. So he's not, I'll say this, he's, he's not suing any of these major news brands or, or alternative news brands, but in any of these companies, he is suing you and he has previously attacked you and your credibility and your motives. So one might suggest that it is a consistent 
strategy that, you know, to discredit you and then a lawsuit against you and not others, you know, maybe there's some hope of, of public salvation by if, if, if that is successful. And, and that's my speculation about his motives. And then you sued him. Yeah, because what happened is, uh, you know, Play the Game, this wonderful, wonderful Danish organization, has a conference every couple of years. And I, what I thought was really interesting for me is why all these organizations own the podium, Canadian Tire, uh, Whistler Blackcomb, Rocky Mountaineer, and the Vancouver Whitecaps, why they decided not to talk to anyone in Burns Lake and Prince George, because by then there were a number of people in Prince George from Prince George College who had also made allegations and said, you know, until we get this resolved, we're asking you to step aside from our boards, right? They all supported him and kept him on the board. Right. So I thought, how is it that you can have dozens now of First Nations people making allegations of physical and psychological and racial abuse but we're not going to talk to those First Nations people. We're not. We're going to pretend they don't exist, really. Yeah. And we're just going to keep going with the story that we've been told. So I looked at how we are in historically in terms of addressing um, allegations of racism, very serious allegations of racism in sport. So I went off to Denmark, and the day before my talk, I was going. I was about to give the organizers my paper so they could lawyer it at the at the you know the very final draft. And they said to me, "We've received a letter from Mr. Furlong's lawyer, and he's threatening that if we let you talk, uh, he's threatening to sue us." And so they very nicely, in their Danish way, said, "Well, we said to them, you know, uh, censorship was outlawed in Denmark 150 years ago, and we're not bringing it back." So of course, uh, my talk was packed with people. Uh huh. Yeah, and you can you can read that uh, you can read that paper on on the Play the Game website. We'll link to it. But t- tell me about your lawsuit against. So after he he went on a an absolute national barrage during during that time period that I was in Denmark, uh, in, saying incredible things, saying that I went into the RCMP office in Burns Lake and laid the sex abuse allegations against him. I mean, I was with my book club (laughs) in Ontario when those allegations were made. I was nowhere near Burns Lake, and and the only time I called the RCMP up there was after Bev Abraham said to me, I went to the police yesterday. Yeah. Of course I had to ask the police if indeed she had gone. There's no way I'm going to move forward with the story going on the complainant's Word. Mm-hmm. Of course, I had to get confirmation from the RCMP. Either they and they wouldn't confirm or deny. So eventually, they ended up calling me when I was covering the London Olympics, and by then they were investigating. So of course, I had nothing to do with with um, the allegations made. Beverly right. Abraham was perfectly capable of deciding whether or not she was going to make these allegations to the RCMP. She told me right from the start she wanted to, but she needed to gain the strength. Right. So that's what you're suing him for, essentially, a libelous uh, – what you things. say is a libelous claim that, 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 that you had actually well, – And not just that. Acted with malice against yeah, him. Yeah, acted with – yeah, like he, he was – you know, he was – He's was been on a campaign to discredit you and your countersuing, basically. Yes, right. that's, I think that's okay. accurate. Um, what I said was that the Georgia Strait did not stand by you. Yeah, and that's incorrect. The Georgia Strait has been – enormously supportive of me, and particularly my, my editor, Charlie Smith. So I owe him an ap- apology and, and the Georgia Strait, which I think so. I'll issue right now. Uh, sorry. You were aware when you wrote for them? I did know. Charlie came to me sort of halfway through and said, I hate to tell you this, Laura, but I looked at our 
our liability insurance and we don't cover freelancers. And I had already talked to my husband, my wonderful, wonderful partner, about this. I said, you know what, like this is really going to cost and what are we going to do? And he said, do the story. Mm -hmm. I'll support you. I jumped to the conclusion seeing that you were being sued, the Georgia Strait wasn't, and that you were footing your own legal bills. Well, that flies in the face of what I believe a publication exists for when it commissions work from a journalist, whatever their insurance says. I, I think that there's an implicit contract that they are standing by that work and will support it. It does change matters that you knew that you would not be supported. Yeah. So, so I do apologize for that. And there's a separate conversation as to whether or not that's something that we need to really think about as more and more work, especially as investigative work goes on to a freelance basis. Yeah. How and it's we, a total fluke that I happen to be married to such an incredible person yeah. who has the uh, financial means to... Now, there go his savings, right? Like, I mean, you think about what that has done to our life. It's massive. Massive. So how much has this cost you so far, Ballpark? This has cost us, when you include all the travel, all the times up to Burns Lake and Prince George and Ireland, you know, I got a lot of important documents in Ireland. That took quite a time. Um, oh, it's well over 250000 now. Well over. What were you paid for the article? 2500 What's happened to your freelance career since? Dried up almost completely. There's a few, you know, there are people who have stood by me. They've they've been brave, my editors, and uh, I really appreciate that. I've been asked, you know, like to speak now and then. I have to be very careful about what I say because everything you say is uh, actionable, of course. I mean, I'm not saying anything here that I haven't said before. Yeah. I, I stand by the students. I think they're enormously brave. Of course, I stand by the story, and I'm very proud of the story. What's happened to Furlong since this all broke? Well, I'm, I, I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, he, you know, he, he doesn't, I mean, you can just look on the net. He's not speaking the way he used to, right? He used to have all kinds of motivational speaking engagements. Well, what can you tell me about the facts of his life and if they've changed at all? Is he still on those boards? Does he still have he's the same? He's still on the boards he was on before the story. And he's on like an advisory board in a mining company now too. Who does he work for now? Well, like he's the executive chair of the of the Vancouver Whitecaps uh, soccer team. I, I think that would be like you know that, to, as I understand it, that's a paid position, right? That's that's more than a board position, right? Uh, and he is the chair of Rocky Mountain Rail Tours. And how many people on the record at this point have accused him of uh, physical or sexual abuse? Or uh... sexual abuse uh, is not nearly as many people as. Uh, I'm not going to comment on the sexual abuse because I didn't put it in my article in the first place, but people certainly have given me statements about it, and uh, more than just the three who, who are suing him. But in terms of physical and psychological abuse, whether it was to them or they witnessed it, way over 45 now. You know, that's more than two hockey teams. And, and I have to ask Canadians, if two white hockey teams said that a coach had physically and psychologically abused them, I think we might believe them. And I think what Canadians need to ask themselves is why, when First Nations people allege psychological and physical abuse, very serious stuff too, and, and a lot of racial abuse, why aren't they believed? That is your Canada Land show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can always email me at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown, and the show's website is canadalandshow.com. The crowdfunding site is at patreon.com slash canadaland. 
I make this show with Christopher DeMello, and the next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts will be up on Wednesday. If you like this show, support it. Thank you.